Good morning. I'm really not sure how to follow that. I mean, that was just unbelievable. Let's give the Lord a hand. Just thank you. Praise the Lord, man. Open your Bibles to John 7, and we're going to start in verse 53, and we're going to go all the way to John 8, verse 11. So John 7, verses 53, all the way through 8 through 11. And this is a well-known story of the woman caught in the act of adultery and brought before Jesus. What many of us may not know or be aware of is that several scholars question its authenticity. Many question if John the Apostle actually wrote this or did someone else add it later. You may notice a footnote or an assertion in your Bible that says this section was not found in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. And that is true. This section of Scripture is not in the Codus Sinaiticus or the Codus Vaticanus, which are the oldest documents of the Old and New Testament that we have. They are the earliest manuscripts we have of the Bible. We can also look back to the early church fathers like Origen or Cyril or Christostom or Tertullian or Cyprium, and they are also silent on this story of the woman caught in adultery. But others argue this story is, really should be in the Gospel of John. Augustine, who lived in the 300s, affirmed its authenticity. Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin in 300 AD, believed this was part of the Gospel of John as well. And if we look at the majority of our manuscripts, most of them have this section in it as well. We also can look at the reformers like John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli. And, and they also agreed that this story was in the Gospel of John, authentic to John. So as you can see, it's not, it isn't 100% clear, but I believe it is authentic as it flows within the section of John's Gospel. And the story is consistent with the rest of Scripture. It doesn't contradict other areas of Scripture. So we're going to jump into this story this morning. So let's go to our Lord in prayer as we start. Holy Father, we praise you. We're in awe of who you are as we've just sang songs to you, Father. Often not even recognizing the gravity of who you are as we sing praises to you. Help us to get a glimpse of your greatness, of your holiness, of your perfectness, and your love, Father. Help us to have a right view of you this morning. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for what he has done for sinners like us. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look and start in John 7 at verse 53, and it starts by saying, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, 
they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Amen? So the Pharisees and scribes decide they're going to get Jesus themselves. They have already tried to let others do their dirty work for them with no results. In our last chapter, in John 7, the Pharisees sent out officers to arrest Christ. And the officers come back to the Pharisees without him. And the Pharisees ask, why didn't you arrest Jesus? And their answer is, no one ever spoke like this man. Well, this infuriates the Pharisees, and they say, have you also been deceived? So in our section this morning, the religious leaders are motivated. They are wanting to kill Christ. So it seems they figured out the ultimate predicament. They schemed. They've upped the ante. They've plotted in their minds the perfect plan. And this takes us to our first verse this morning, John 7, verse 53, which says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. The Gospel of Luke says that Jesus went out at night and lodged on the Mount of Olives. We find out that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives where he would go to sleep at night. Jesus didn't have a home per se. Jesus, as he often did, slept in the Mount of Olives. I mean, think of that for a moment. The Son of God was homeless by choice. Can you imagine the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, made his bed under the stars. He didn't even have an efficiency condo. He didn't have a trailer. He didn't even have a car to sleep in. Christ not only gave up his life and faced the wrath of God for us, but we see here that he also didn't care about having the necessities, the basic necessities of life, like shelter. He truly showed us that this world was not his home, amen? But let's move on to John 8, 2, which says, Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So let's stop there just for a minute. So Jesus came to the outer courts of the temple and taught. But what is interesting is that it said he sat down to teach the people. It was customary back then to read the scripture standing up, which showed reverence for God's word. And then when the teacher began to expound or explain the text, they would then sit down because now they went from reading God's word to adding their own explanations, their own interpretations to God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. And today our customs are very different, obviously, but we still are called to have a reverent attitude, a high view of Scripture, the right attitude of God's Word. But we move now into the heart of our verses here, John 8, starting at John 8, 3. And it says, The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Can we imagine? Can we, 
understand the picture, the scene? Here Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden the religious elites, the Pharisees and scribes, come in with a woman and place her in front of Jesus and tell him that she was caught in the act of adultery. That means they were witnesses of it. And by the way, Jesus, if you don't know, Moses commanded that she be stoned. What say you, Jesus? What's your opinion on this? I think this would be every pastor's nightmare to be in a situation like this. But it is also odd how the Pharisees and the scribes were just walking to the temple like usual, looking to serve and help others, and they just stumble upon a very concerning situation. They noticed two people doing something unthinkable. The couple was committing adultery. Is that what happened? Were the religious leaders just doing the will of God, trying to do what was right, and stumble on a couple committing adultery? Well, let's read a little bit further in John 8, 6 to find out. Verse 6 says, This they said to test him, and that they might have some charge to bring against him. So we see here that the religious leaders probably planned this elaborate scheme to entrap Christ and they used God's word for their own benefit, for their own gain. We think the adulterous woman is sinful. I mean, the idea of not staying true to the covenant of marriage is serious. We see the damage adultery causes in families, the confusion adultery brings forth in the hearts of children. We see adultery as the epitome of selfishness as men and women rebel against God and cause such pain within their families for moments of pleasure. But, but, I must say that the adultery does not hold a candle to the sinfulness of the Pharisees and scribes in our story. The religious leaders saw the sinfulness of this woman. They, brought, they thought Jesus was a heretic, and yet they didn't even see the heinousness of their own wickedness. I mean, think about it. For them to have a woman caught in adultery meant they witnessed it occurring themselves. And as the law requires, as a couple had to be caught in the act of adultery. Another question to think about is where is the man who was part of the adultery? I mean, the law said both would need to be stoned, not just the woman. Where was the man? Did he get away? Was he part of this plot with the religious leaders? We don't know for sure. But as we continue to look at the situation, it becomes evident. It becomes apparent. It becomes clear that the religious leaders set up the woman to entrap Christ, which leads to point number one. The self-righteous are always the farthest from God. Point number one says the self-righteous are always the farthest from God. The religious leaders would have said they are the closest to God, right? That they have fellowship with him daily. But in reality, God was nowhere to be found because they worship themselves instead of God. They relied, depended on themselves instead of God. These religious leaders were so far gone that they thought they were doing the will of God by killing the Son of God. They listened to their own opinions, their own hearts, as they were led astray. This is why all self-righteous people believe in themselves, because they listen to their own propaganda about themselves. They hear that small voice that speaks from within, and instead of questioning what they hear or challenging their own viewpoints, they just take it in. 
And if you talk to these people, they will often say, God speaks to them regularly. They confuse the self-oriented inward voice with the Holy Spirit. They consider their own self-talk as godly wisdom, but in reality, it usually is part of their own wicked, selfish heart. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come, the first thing he says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Evil thoughts come out of the heart. But this problem goes beyond just the self-righteous because our hearts naturally share evil thoughts that we often listen to as well. Many of us listen to our hearts like we listen to our favorite news, maybe Fox News, right? Whatever Fox News says, we often believe it. And similarly, whatever our heart tells us, we believe that as well. Proverbs 26, 28 warns us by saying, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. When we trust in our own thinking, our own understanding, Scripture says we become a fool ourselves. Scripture tells us not to trust ourselves, but God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Amen? Jerry Bridges wisely says, don't believe everything you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the word of God. I wonder how well we question or challenge our own thinking. Our own self-talk with God's word. What do we do when self says something like, I need to fight for myself, or I'm going to really give it to my spouse because they forgot to take the garbage out, or I can't stand my coworker, or you know what, I don't know if God really does love me. Self-talk will continue to play. The question is, are we practicing discernment? Are we distinguishing our own heart from the Holy Spirit? Instead of listening to self, we need to be proactively preaching God's word to self. Let's go back to our text in John 8 to see the predicament Christ is really in. So we're in John 8, we're going to reread verses 3 through 6. John 8, verses 3 through 6. And it says this, The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Christ is in a serious dilemma, a tough situation. I mean, the Pharisees and scribe put Christ in a seemingly lose-lose situation. Consider the options. Option number one, it says this. He could forgive the woman, which would be consistent with his ministry of showing passion, compassion to the outcast ministering to the sinners, but at the expense of setting aside the Old Testament, ignoring God's, what God's word actually said, which would be setting aside the justice of God. Richard Phillips says, God is holy and burns against sin. Anyone who just brushed aside the demands of his justice would not be a credible as a divine messenger. Or, or on the other hand, Jesus could follow the Old Testament and have this woman punished for her offense. The question is, how would that compromise his teachings of grace? I mean, who would come and confess their sin 
to Christ if he just stoned someone for their sin. John Calvin says the religious leader's intentions was to constrain Christ to depart from his office of preaching grace that he might appear to be fickle and unsteady. But John MacArthur sort of explains both options in a nutshell by saying if Jesus rejected the law of Moses, his credibility would be gone. If he held the Old Testament law, his reputation for compassion and forgiveness would have been questioned. So it looks like Christ is in real trouble. The Pharisees and scribes must have been pretty proud of themselves, thinking, we got him. We got Jesus. Whatever response he gives, he will cook his own goose. The question is, what does Jesus do? How will he respond to such a conundrum as this? The last part of verse 6 says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What's the old saying? When You have a problem when all else fails, when you don't know what to do, just start writing on the ground, right? Okay, that's not really an old saying, but that's exactly what Jesus does. He bent down and started writing on the ground. And many people give numerous explanations and theories of what Christ was writing. But honestly, church, the scripture does not tell us. It's silent on what he wrote. So I think the best thing I can do in a a service to you is be silent on this as well and be faithful to the text. In reality, it really wasn't what he wrote on the ground anyway that took the wind out of the sails of the religious leaders. But what Christ said next, let's listen to verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. You can imagine the religious leaders feeling great. They finally could catch Jesus in a pickle here. The religious leaders were antsy for an answer, probably excited, confident. Adrenaline pumping as they recognize Jesus is about to speak. And he says, let him who's without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. You can see the religious leader's face begin to drop. They probably went from excited and overjoyed to horrified and sickened as the gravity of Christ's words began to settle in. In one statement, Christ thwarts their whole plan. In one single solitary statement, Christ undermined their scheme. In one statement, Christ destroys hours of preparation with wisdom that comes from above. Christ calls them out. When Christ said, let them who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. This was not a general statement to everyone because it was, it was, if it was, then We could never confront anybody with sin because we often struggle with sin ourselves. But Jesus is confronting the religious leader's hypocrisy in the moment of scheming, of plotting, the selfishness, the deception, using God's word for their own benefit in the situation. Jesus uncovered what they thought was hidden. He confronts the religious leaders where their corruption lies, where their wicked hearts schemed. Christ goes to their conscience. The religious leaders had no tolerance for the woman's sin, and yet they ignored their own sin. As Scripture says, you who judge others, do you judge yourself? This is what Jesus was getting at when he called them out. 
They didn't see their own blaring selfishness, their lack of love, their own deception. Instead, they only saw the sins of others. So Jesus pointed out their sin to them as well. Let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Which leads to point number two. The self-righteous can only see the sins of others. The self-righteous can only see the sins of others. Jesus describes the Pharisees as blind. And he's not talking about physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. But it's not just the Pharisees that are blind, but anyone who is self-righteous. They can't see themselves properly. Sins like pride, a critical spirit, lack of love totally goes unnoticed with them. They think they're just doing the God a good service. What they see in themselves is usually super, superficial sins at best. For example... They may say something like this. I'm really stressed. I'm really struggling in my quiet time this week. I usually try to spend an hour with God, but lately it's only been about 50 minutes. So God really is convicting me of of to work harder, to really give him my best. Or they say something like this. I'm really struggling with my sin. I mean, God really convicted me when I was driving. I mean, this is almost shameful to speak about. I mean, I don't want the enemy to use this to get a foothold, but I know I need to confess my sin, so I'm going to tell you about it. When I was driving on Marco Island, I drove five miles over the speed limit. I felt so guilty. I I felt so bad about my sin that I pulled myself over and gave myself a ticket. Or... I know I'm in real sin because God has blessed me with so many gifts and abilities. I mean, he's made me so amazing. I have so many great things to offer the world. I'm just not living up to my God-given potential. I think I'm in sin. I expect so much more from myself. This is the type of sins the self-righteous see in themselves. Sins that make them look better to others. But in reality, they focus most of their attention anyway on everyone else. They are what we'd call the sin police, who usually don't have a warrant when they confront others. They speak the truth to others quite bluntly because they ignore the greatest commands themselves to love God and others like they're already loving themselves. They major on the minors and minor on the majors. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Three through five. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The self-righteous are trying to get the speck out of everyone else's eye while they have a log protruding out of their own eye. It's quite an absurd picture, right, that Jesus paints. Here we see someone trying to, they get the tweezers out, and they're like, I see a speck. It's right there. Let me get it out. A little speck there. Got it? All the while, there's a huge log protruding out of their own eye, right? And they're smacking the person they're trying to get the speck out of because they're not seeing their own sin. I wonder if we see our own sin here this morning. Or are we walking around with a log? In our eye. It is natural to see the sin of others. That's obvious. While it's supernatural to see the sin within yourself. 
Maybe it's with your spouse. We see their sin so clearly. It's so obvious to us, and yet they really don't see anything wrong with, and we don't see anything really wrong with ourselves, right? We just think we're really pretty good people, and our spouse, well, they're sometimes good, and they're sometimes they're sort of crummy. Truth of the matter is we aren't as good as we think we are. Our hearts deceive us, but I must say it is easy, it is tempting to believe our own propaganda. I mean, it just feels so right to think we're right, to think we're better, to think in every situation, well, I might be wrong, but at least I was innocent. My motors were good, right? Let me give us an example of how we can be deceived by our own hearts. Let's say I was mean to my wife, And I yelled at her, and now I'm thinking to myself, replaying the situation to myself, and this is what I hear from my own heart. Here we go. Yes, I was mean to my wife, and I I did yell at her, and I, I shouldn't have been so reactive, but you know what? I was tired for crying out loud. You know, I had a stressful day. I think I might even be getting sick. Yes, I was a little mean, little mean, little mean. I think she's overly sensitive for crying out loud. I mean, she didn't even consider all the stress I'm under when I yelled at her. Come to think of it, I think she was wrong too. She could have overlooked my anger, maybe given me some grace. I need a wife who's understanding. When I have a hard day, I want her to understand Not just be upset at me just because I'm not perfect all the time, right? And my heart continues to talk as I continue to give my heart full attention. The question is, do we see ourselves correctly this morning? Are we going around picking specks out of other people's eyes while we have a log protruding out of our own eye this morning? Here's an easy way to know if we have a log in our eye. When you read scripture, whose sin do you see? Do you see your own sin or do you see others? Let's move on because we're running out of time here. And we're now in um, John 8, verses 9 through 11. John 8, verses 9 through 11. But when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The accusers all leave, and Christ is with this woman alone. I want us to think about Christ's attitude towards this woman. When you see our Lord's interaction with this sinful, adulterous woman, what words describe how Christ treats her? Words that come to mind to me are compassionate, forgiving, warm, graceful, merciful, encouraging, affirming. This woman was guilty, and yet Christ showed her warmth, encouraging, encouragement, and gave her affirmation in the midst of just being caught in adultery. Jesus saw a person in front of him, 
And you may be thinking, of course, she is a person. And of course, I'm not talking about the physical appearance of a person, but what I'm saying is that Christ valued her. We just saw how the religious leaders treated her. She wasn't anything to them. She wasn't a person created in the image of God. She was just someone they could use to get what they wanted. And yet Christ personally focuses on her, personally ministers to her. Jesus stood up and said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus doesn't lecture her or tell her about her sin. He gives her grace and truth. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What an amazing statement. We can see the intermingling of grace, love, and truth wrapped up in the one statement. The question is, why did God show such love to her? How could a righteous God love such a sinner? This leads to point number three. God's love is not based on us. God's love is not based on us. James Boyce asks us to imagine that one of our children are sitting on our lap and they turn around and ask us why we as parents love them. And they say something like this, Daddy or Mommy, why do you love me so? What would you say to them? What would your answer be? be? Would we say that we love them because they are so good? And of course the answer is no, because sometimes our children aren't good at all. Sometimes they're little scoundrels, right? Yet we still love them. Would we say we love them because they're beautiful? And of course, the answer is no, because if they weren't beautiful, we would still love them anyway, right? Would we say that we love them because they are ours? And of course, the answer is no, because we would love them even if they were adopted. And the question is, why do we love our children so? And Boyce concludes that love is unexplainable. He says, the best answer we can give is that love is divine and we love our children because God himself first loved us. Amen? And similarly, this is how we can explain this love that Christ had for this woman. It was a love she didn't deserve. She was a sinner. She had debased her body in adultery. She was worthy of death by the Old Testament standards. And yet Christ gave her grace, love, and mercy and ultimately life. Romans tells us God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, God died for us. What news? God died for us while we were still enemies of the cross. We were all like the adulterous woman at one time. We lived for our sin instead of God. And yet God had compassion on us. He showed us his love and grace. The question is, do we know this morning such love? The question is, do we know such grace? Do we know such a Savior? 
If you don't know this kind of grace and love that the woman caught in adultery found in Christ, then I pray that today would be the day of salvation for you. I pray that you will humble yourself this morning before the living God and repent and believe that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Christ calls us to himself this morning. He gives us his mercy. He gives us his grace. He gives us his love and commands us to go and sin no more. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we're in awe of such grace. We often have our certain sins that really appall us while often we're giving ourselves a pass. Forgive us for such judgment. Help us to have a right judgment. Help us to to talk to others about truth because we're wanting them to have the love of God and to be followers of Christ. Help us to truly love people, not to just confront people because we're offended or annoyed by them. Help us to truly confront people because we love people. Help us to have a heart like Christ's who went out of his way to speak to sinners, to speak your truth, speak life. Help us to be a church like that, to walk in humility and sacrifice ourselves for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.